Well, when I was in college, I, uh, I went home for a long holiday weekend, much like this one, uh, with a friend to do some rappelling. And uh, his extended family was going to be converging on his house that weekend. And I didn't know that, but uh, they were coming and they were going to be there for a big dinner. I think it was maybe that Saturday night. And so don't you love being the one at a family gathering like that? where all these strangers are hugging each other and then they get to you and they look and they go, who's this guy again? Why is he here? And should I hug him? I don't know, because in the South, you know, it would be quick to hug a stranger. Um, sometimes they just do that, right? And so I'm in this sort of awkward moment. And at some point during that dinner, the conversation turned to their neighborhood, their, the neighborhood that his parents lived in. And I remember my friend's mother, who did most of the talking, actually, describing a new neighbor lady as one of those born-again Christians. One of those born-again Christians. She said, they're nice people, but I just don't get it. For some reason, she looked at me to explain further and she said, we go to church and all, but they're kind of overboard, don't you think? And I'm like, I don't know them. I was 19. I was agnostic at the time. And I'm pretty sure that I just nodded along with what she was saying. But her comment has actually stuck with me. Here I am remembering it today. And it seemed odd to me even then, those born-again Christians. A handful of years later, when I had come to faith and then began preparing for ministry, that distinctive phrase would come up here and there as I followed some of the debates within the church and culture, and particularly in American Christianity. According to the uh, Pew Research Center's Religious Landscape Study of 2014, there is a significant swath of American Christians, more than half of the then 70% of all Americans who claimed Christianity, who would not likely call themselves born again. Their religious association with Christianity, based on their own descriptions in the study, could be described as something more cultural than anything. They believe in God. Some have a church. Some go to that church. Some don't have a church. They pray at least sometimes. They practice the golden rule and such things as this. But life is about far more than religion, of which Christianity is one. Politically, they are both liberal and conservative. So, more than half of the then 70% of Americans. So when we eavesdrop again this morning on Jesus' late-night conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, we're kind of left scratching our heads a bit, aren't we? Based on what we hear, it's probably safe to assume that being a Christian is synonymous with this concept, this reality, really, of being born again which we find out from Jesus and ultimately from the church as they took this concept forward and we hear from, from uh, Paul in Romans 8 today, it's more than an idea or an isolated experience. It's certainly more than a label. John 3.16, toward the end of this account, has long been the most public and succinct proclamation right, of God's loving intention for the whole world. And it comes on the heels, though, if you think about it, of this corrective to a very well-meaning, a very sincere, a very religious Nicodemus, for whom something is clearly missing. And I suppose it's strange, and yet, in light of this story, not so strange that this born-again distinction exists in our day. It's this very sort of strangeness that kind of surfaces with Nicodemus. What is Jesus doing? What's he talking about? Because Nicodemus was a member of the religious ruling council of Israel. He was a teacher. He was a scholar. 
He was a Pharisee. He was a serious practitioner of the Jewish faith. He was an expert on their story. He was a man who, above all, all people, would seem to be the one to understand what Jesus was talking about. So Jesus is surprised or maybe just disappointed that Nicodemus has some other ideas than his own about the kingdom of God, or to put it another way, about what God is up to in the world. Nicodemus' ideas are not problematic because he lacks some sort of new information that Jesus is just all of a sudden bringing. That's not the problem. The problem is he's supposed to be an expert on all the old information from which he should be drawing the same conclusions. Does that make sense? He's an expert on all this old information that is actually saying very much of what Jesus is saying, and it's in continuity. Somehow, Nicodemus has not come to the conclusions that should, to Jesus, be obvious. So that's what bubbles up through this story. Conversely, Nicodemus is surprised that Jesus, who's a Jew, doesn't seem to locate his religious identity in his birth, in his ethnicity, right? And he isn't harmonizing with the current expression and aims of that religious identity. Israel is the kingdom of God as far as Nicodemus is concerned and others like him. So why doesn't Jesus, if he's a prophet, if he's their Messiah, why doesn't he seem to be in continuity with that? Why is it, are they at, at, at odds here? Jesus is in continuity with it. The conflict between them, if you want to call it that, amounts to this. The kingdom of God isn't and never has been flesh and blood, ancestry and intellect, tradition and ceremony, moral norms, cultural expressions, or national strength. At its very core, according to Jesus, the kingdom of God is the relationship of heaven to earth, the profound and transforming effect of the spiritual breaking in upon the natural. Even creation itself, even everything natural was a move of the Spirit, was the result of an act of God, an unpredictable wind blowing from without upon chaos or void to make it something, blowing from without, not from within. This is how Israel actually became Israel, a surprising move of God toward a man named Abraham, and an ongoing just litany of surprising moves of God to draw people, to draw humanity through Israel into the kingdom. This is how God is redeeming the whole world. Why is it surprising to Nicodemus? Jesus is reminding him that the kingdom of God and our entrance into it um, begins for each one of us and for all of us where a former way of life ends, a former way of looking at the world ends, and the wind blows, so to speak, and blows us into a new way of living. Heaven invades earth for each of us and all of us together. What that ends up meaning is that everything else about us is reimagined and reinterpreted in light of a truth that isn't, it's not locked up inside us waiting to be let out, even if we've grown up in the faith. The truth about us and the world resides in God. And this is what we are given. It's this gift. And it begins to define us fully at our baptism, our spiritual rebirth. And if we were baptized as children, it's what we confirm to be true, be real about us when we profess the faith as our own. It is rebirth. It's a new light. 
by which we see life in the world. And no, we don't sprout wings at that point. We don't get a high-powered spiritual antenna. As I often say, we don't start glowing in the dark or hovering above the ground about two inches. We don't receive the capacity for moral perfection despite some of the very self-righteous Christians you might have been around. This isn't what happens. What do we do? We simply begin again in God. Everything has changed or is in a process of changing as our lives with God and in God are the only lives we know. They're not separable. They're the only lives we know. We are no longer the center. He is. Our narratives are no longer the stories by which we live. The gospel of the kingdom of God is. Like Nicodemus, there's much to be shed. Unlearned. Relearned. I saw a bumper sticker yesterday that said, don't believe everything you think. I thought that's pretty profound. Judging by the other bumper stickers, this was not, it didn't appear to be someone who would probably profess the Christian faith. Leave that to your imagination. Don't believe everything you think. And I think that's a great little mantra in our day and age, isn't it? It fits nicely with the idea that our thinking must undergo rebirth, a move of God from without. Encountering the triune God, today is Trinity Sunday, and so encountering the triune God as Jesus told it, as the gospel of the world's redemption tells it, it's inherently life-changing. This is what our other scriptures today are making vivid. On this Trinity Sunday, year B, we call it, in particular, what the scriptures want to tell us is that encountering the living God is life-changing. Our thinking must undergo rebirth. Our, our lives must undergo a change. And we see it even in this Exodus burning bush encounter. I'll just spend a couple of minutes on that. Moses saw the burning bush, he stopped to see it, and then he encountered far more than he bargained for, right? Like Moses, we find ourselves going about our business, doing our little shepherding thing on the backside of nowhere, it may feel like. We go about our business, we shepherd whatever we've got to shepherd, taking care of that. We experience a little bit of wilderness in our own lives, and then we're drawn into this crisis of reality. The strange bush is easy to peer at, right? Grabs our attention. But Moses is not just staring at a bush anymore, he finds out. Christianity isn't some, you know, not to chase a rabbit trail here, this isn't in my notes, but Christianity is not just some glowing bush among others that we stop to see and partake of and, and sort of observe its goodness on our own terms. But in the same way Moses encountered this bush, he realized what? He's standing on holy ground. He's standing on holy ground. Like him, we've entered into this heaven and earth tension going on, this tension of God seizing our attention, calling us to do what? To do something, to remove our shoes, to acknowledge it. The ground, the same ground that we've always been walking, your whole life now is holy. The dirt under your feet becomes holy. And we respond. We find out there is no domesticating what God is communicating. There is only transformation. There is only response. Jesus tells Nicodemus that when he would be lifted up on the cross, we find out this is what he's referring to, like the bronze serpent that, that Moses lifted up for the salvation of the people, that what would happen? Eternity will break into the temporal lives of men and women, and they will be drawn into, as Jesus says, eternal life. Everything changes. Life itself becomes holy. 
And together, those who look to Him, we become a temple where God dwells by His Spirit. Where the presence of God is present in and to us and through us. So that said, what about Paul's point in Romans 8? As we're letting all of these sort of speak to us about an encounter with a living God. What does the Spirit, the wind of God, do for those who once lived according to their basic desires or ideologies, believing everything they think? By the Spirit, they're reborn. But it's not just an ethereal concept. He actually anchors it in a domestic, powerful domestic reality, a concept. They are adopted as sons and daughters of God. You become a new you with a new present and future, regardless of the past. You're given a heavenly pedigree. Heaven, eternity has invaded your present. And so they, the Romans to whom he's talking, we are no longer slaves We're no longer powerless to resist sin, no longer languishing under the compulsion of moral law, which it's so interesting, you know, that we find ourselves under compulsion to sin and then under the compulsion to rely on moral law to sort of fix it and make it work for us. And he's saying, you're not slaves to any of that. You're not slaves to trying to change yourselves. You've been found anew, created anew, adopted anew into a new reality. You're born again into a different family. Different present, different future, free. This is what the Spirit is constantly telling us. The Spirit of adoption. The Spirit of sonship and daughterhood telling us, causing us to be able to cry out to God, Abba, Father. The Spirit is telling us who we are and whose we are. Even if life brings suffering, because Paul does not omit that, even if it brings suffering, this is who we are. Even if we find ourselves, and we, ought, we should, we do find ourselves groaning with all creation at the way the world is going, maybe at the way we're living. Paul says who we are is secure, come what may. Verses 20 and 21 are particularly interesting to me. It says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In short, the way this world is going, he's saying, with its short-sighted, flesh-driven, corruption-breeding systems and its norms will purposefully expose its own self-defeating futility. In short, it's not going to work that way. It just doesn't work. Not forever. Not this way. People mu- he's saying people must and will turn to God even as the whole creation around them seems to long for something better than what we're doing with it and to it. He's pointing to a destiny that we're already experiencing now. Creation has hope to be set free. Not just you, Not just your circumstances, but all of creation. And so we find ourselves, when we're reborn into the family of God, we find ourselves now in this sense of both glory and groaning with that bigger story at work in our hearts. Creation has hope to be set free. So do we, to be reborn. And that freedom is our hope because the Spirit groans within us. And we ache for better. Do you ache for better? I would suggest, and I think Paul would suggest, that is the Spirit of the Lord at work in you. We ache for better for our world, for ourselves, for our world. 
and for freedom. Let me close with a bit of Frederick Douglass' story. He's a former slave, and hopefully all of you know who he was. And he was a living counterexample, powerful embodiment to slaveholders' arguments that slaves lacked the intellectual capacity to function as American citizens. He proved them wrong. He became a statesman and a national leader for abolition in his own best-selling autobiography, exposing the ungodly horrors of slavery, won people in droves to the movement of abolition, to the cause of freedom. And one detail of his story is most compelling to me. At 20, he had had a series of masters, some, kind of, uh, some that were kind, some that were harsh, and one who almost killed him by the time he was 20 years old. But by 1838, he had become a skilled worker. In the local shipyards, he was earning good, ma- good money for his master, and he was enjoying a measure of freedom because of that, as well as protection. He had, he had been able to make a community and have good friends in the area. He had fallen in love with the woman who would eventually become his wife. Now, it was enslavement, but by comparison, it was a pretty good position. His peers in the cotton fields of the Deep South were treated like animals. Their violent deaths had just gone unremarkable in history. And Frederick Douglass had come close to being sold down the river by this point on, a slave, on, on slave convoys that, that went down the Mississippi River to, to the Deep South. And he knew that being uh, forced to labor on one of those plantations in the Deep South would kill him. But he knew that his situation was far better than what they were experiencing. And the truth is, he might have accepted his conditions and just disappeared into the past. None of us talking about him today. His relatively safe position would have been enough for a lot of people. They would have thanked God for their blessings and stayed put in the shipyards. But Douglas didn't. His plan for escaping to freedom was as easy as it was risky. In the days of slavery, free black sailors carried documents to prove that they were free so they could move from northern and foreign ports to southern ports without someone detaining them. These were the days before photos, so that what these papers would provide a description, a, a description of color and distinguishing marks and scars and height and what have you. And in the shipyard, where he was a slave, he met a free black sailor whose papers might cover for him. They might work for him if a white official who looked at them didn't look too closely. Risking his own freedom, even that sailor lent Douglas his papers. And that day, to obtain his freedom, he boarded a train. That's all he had to do with those papers, and he was free. The point is, Frederick Douglass could have settled for being what you might call a better class of slave. But he knew nothing of the sort could compare to the freedom for which he was born. Freedom was everything, and it was worth everything. And in his freedom, what did he do? He made others free. Now, we certainly can't relate to the life and the suffering of chattel slavery, nor of the courage that it would take to find freedom from it. Not even close. But I would say this. In the call to be born again, we, like Nicodemus, like Paul's community in Rome, we're confronted with this opportunity for true freedom as sons and daughters of God, or even with our religious sensibilities to remain merely a better class of slave. What Jesus is holding out to us 
is adoption through rebirth. True rebirth. Not something. Everything. Everything. A new life. And no, the Christian life doesn't always feel like a radical form of freedom. But that's exactly what it means to be an heir of God, a son or daughter. What we hope for, despite what we're experiencing, is secure, come what may, in all of our weakness. What, what we're given will never be revoked. What a freedom to know that. And we are simply called to live into that hope, into that gift. And sometimes groaning, but always making the truth of our identities, of our adoption, of our new birth, the foundational reality by which we live. It is the freedom in which and from which we hold out freedom to others. Our own stories are those stories of freedom. And I'll leave you with Douglas' own story of his rebirth in Christ. He says this, I was not more than 13 years old when in my loneliness and destitution I longed for someone to whom I could go as to a father and protector. The preaching of a white Methodist minister named Hanson was the means of causing me to feel that in God, I had such a friend. He thought that all men, great and small, bond and free, were sinners in the sight of God. That they were by nature rebels against his government. And that they must repent of their sins and be reconciled to God through Christ. I cannot say that I had a very distinct notion of what was required of me, but one thing I did know well. I was wretched and had no means of making myself otherwise. So I consulted a good old colored man named Charles Lawson. And in tones of holy affection, he told me to pray and to cast all my care upon God. This I sought to do. And though for weeks I was a poor, broken-hearted mourner, traveling through doubts and fears, I finally found my burden lightened and my heart relieved. I found myself, I found that I loved all mankind, slaveholders not accepted, though I abhorred slavery more than ever. I saw the world in a new light. And my greatest concern was to have everybody see what I see. My desire to learn increased, and especially did I want a thorough acquaintance with the contents of the Scriptures. What a powerful testimony of a man who in his temporal life and also in his spiritual calling lived out freedom. And again, in much of his life we can't possibly relate, but in, his faith, he is a, in, in our faith he is a brother calling us to the same thing which Jesus has called us to. Freedom that makes the world free. New life, new birth into a new family that calls others into this new birth. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Nicodemus. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for Frederick Douglass. Thank you for this family and this community of faith. Help us to continue to receive what we've been given that cannot be revoked, the adoption we have as sons and daughters, and help us to live it and to shed any weak idea of what it means to follow you and to embrace what you will give us strength to be and to do that is secure as we live out our lives as heirs of the Most, God, most High God, heirs of eternity of your kingdom. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.